Listeners, this week's episode of The Greatest Games is brought to you by Manscaped, the world's best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped want to offer you 20% off and free international shipping on their precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, just because you're listening to us today. That's 20% off the famous Lawnmower 3.0, Manscaped's third-generation trimmer fitted with a cutting-edge ceramic blade designed to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology, so you can be free from all those pre-shaved jitters. The Lawnmower 3.0 is a part of Manscaped's Perfect Package, a bundle that includes everything you need to keep trimmed, cut-free and clean. Now, however you're styled, be that silky smooth or carefree, taking good care of your testes is absolutely essential. Every April marks Testicular Cancer Awareness Month, so if you're not already well acquainted with them, then it's as good a time as ever to get to know your buds below. Testicular cancer is the most common form of cancer in men aged 15 to 35, and noticing a change at the earliest possible time is the best way towards ensuring testicular cancer is treated and cured effectively. So get friendly with your testes, and if you want to be extra affectionate to them, get 20% off and free shipping with the code BLIZZARD20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com if you use the code BLIZZARD20. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson, and with us is Dominic Sambrook, historian, author, columnist and co-presenter of the Rest is History podcast. Dominic's most recent book, Who Dares Wins, is about Britain in the early 1980s. And if you're a parent, then Dominic's first books in his new series of history books for children, Adventures in Time, hit the shops in July. Dominic! A pleasure to have such a busy man like yourself, Marcus, to, to take the time and come on the pod. What a great introduction. Thank you very much. You've done all the plugging right at the beginning, where I like it, so we can just call it a day here and, and let everyone get on with the rest of their day. Absolutely right. Well, today we are focusing on the match that happened at the Molyneux on the 13th of December 1954. Wolverhampton Wanderers 3, Budapest Honved 2. Dominic, why have you chosen this game? Uh... I'm a Wolves fan. Um, it took place on my son's birthday, um, some years before his before he was born. I have to say, um, it's the most famous match in Wolves' history, the the greatest of the floodlit friendlies, and of course, it's the match that decided the championship of the world in the Black <laughs> Country's favour, as Fair everybody as well. knows. Invented European football. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, European football begins and ends on the 13th of December, <laughs> 1954. And I don't know why people keep playing, to be honest, because we know who won. Yeah, but it did seem that the matter was settled fairly and decisively on that yeah. day, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah, very rare that you can say a game has such direct consequences. But the uh, Dominic, of course, as a fine Daily Mail man, knows it was the Daily Mail's headline. It was. Proclaiming Wolves the champions <laughs> of the world. Which so... If the Daily Mail says it, it must be true, right? <laughs> uh, and that's so needled the French, which again, another great tick for the Daily Mail. Yeah. That they, they decided they had to invent a European Cup to, to actually decide the matter. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you something. When I was doing my research for this podcast, because of course I do like to do my research when I'm up against a sparring partner like Wilson. Um, <laughs> Wolves had beaten the Moscow teams uh, a few weeks earlier, and the Daily Mirror 
um, after we'd beaten, I think, Spartak, said they had a big headline, Wolves must play Germany. And um, their, their mirror said that England's team should consist of all Wolves players, that this team of supermen should take to the Wembley turf to play the Germans. So I kind of think that's the ultimate headline, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting looking at this game because there's so much going on at a more international level. I mean, Jonathan, there was... Um, so to sort of set the scene in Europe, you know, no European Cup. Uh, then you did have the Metropa Cup, which existed for teams in sort of Central and Eastern Europe, which was which was a very important tournament, of course. For yeah, it was, for it was many hugely sides. important. I mean, that, that had run from the late twenties. I mean, it was a it was a very difficult tournament to try and follow now because some editions of it lasted five years, some lasted mm-hmm. six months. Um, but yeah, I mean that that was uh, Hungary, Austria, Yugoslavia, Italy. Um, I think I think West Germany. Sorry, I think Germany did did compete before the war. I don't think they ever did afterwards, um, and, and that was taken very seriously. I mean, I mean uh, Weepesh's victory in the in the Metropa Cup in thirty thirty eight, I think, is regarded uh, you know as one of the great triumphs of Hungarian football. So that that was sort of the beginnings of 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 European football. But really, before you had the European Cup, you just had these friendlies, and the great thing by the early fifties was you had floodlights. Yeah, so they're on not, TV. Yeah, so they were not everywhere, but Molyneux installed the floodlights. Uh, I think fourteen months before before this game. So, in what would that be? October fifty three. Yeah, summer um, fifty three. So summer fifty three in the first game. And the first game is, is October South 53. Africa. And yes, South Africa and beat them three one. Yeah, and, and then we and then the Racing Club. Sorry, Trough, you do your thing. Well, and, and then yeah, they beat Celtic, Racing Club. But draw nil nil against First Vienna, beat Maccabi Tel Aviv ten nil, beat Spartak four nil, and then beat Dynamo Moscow two one. Mm-hmm. So a run of victories, one draw against First Vienna. But these were hugely well attended, and they were incredibly popular on TV. Yeah, and it, it and it's the beginnings really of, of modern football. In that, I mean, you, it's very obvious when you watch the even on the sort of two and a half minute Pathé newsreel clip that's on YouTube of this, Wolves are wearing not normal shirts. Mm-hmm. If you compare these shirts to what were worn in say the the 1953 FA Cup final, 53 FA Cup final, they're heavy, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're more like old school rugby shirts, whereas these are light, silky shirts, the idea being that the silkiness sort of glimmered under the floodlights, but of course they're much lighter, they're much better to play football in. Um, Sunderland played Torpedo Moscow a little bit after this, and they, they wore a, a, just a plain red silk shirt for that game. So this idea that somehow, for some reason, floodlight silk shirts go together and and yeah, you know, the 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 crowds, the excitement. We we think of friendlies these days as being quite tepid, irrelevant affairs. But this was a massive occasion. Yeah, it was mm. a big occasion. You're right about the shirts. So one of the shirts, I think it was Roy Swinburne's shirt, was brought to Molyneux about six or seven years ago to the museum. And it is just this. It looks like a sort of high security, you know, like a high vis vest, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, it's very garish and it's very light and shiny. And you're right about the crowds. So Geoffrey Green in the Times talked about this sort of roaring hurricane uh, of the Molyneux crowd sucking the goals in um, in the second half. And and you see that, you know, this mattered immensely to people because it was a one-off, because it's such a novelty. It's such an exciting thing to be playing an international team at night under the floodlights. You know, we all know, sort of hardened football watchers know that there's something about a floodlit you know, evening game, especially against European opposition, that kind of gets the juices flowing. And I think if you think of 
1954, 55, for, for lots of people who haven't been abroad, you know, they haven't seen foreign foreign footballers. It's tremendously exciting. And there's this sort of, even on the Pathé clips, I think you get a mm. sense of the electricity. You know, it's kind of rainy night and the, you know, the novelty of the lights and the strange players in the strange kits with, with unpronounceable names. And that's just the Wolves team. but but the match was considered so important that the second half was broadcast live on the BBC which of course wasn't the norm at the time before that it was really only FA Cup finals and one or two other bits and pieces dating back to I think 1938 might have been the first one shown live so the the importance of this match Jonathan it was very much as you sort of said it was it was not just club side versus club side it had much bigger importance in terms of on the international scene yeah, I mean, I think there was a sense that this was the culmination of those Ludlit friendlies that mm-hmm. uh, England particularly, but the whole world sort of respected Hungarian football. But it, of course, Hungary had beaten England 6-3 at Wembley the previous November and then had beaten them again 7-1 in Budapest in, in May 54. So the, you know, there was a sense here, I think, of English football getting its own back on Hungarian football. Um, and and this, it was, I mean, what would be the equivalent now? It's it's not quite the same, but it would be like playing a Brazilian team in the 80s or something. There would be, it was a sense that the Hungarians, even though they didn't win the, the World Cup final, um, that they were the best in the world. They, you know, they'd had that four-year unbeaten run in which they won the, the Olympics. They inflict that you know, humiliation on England at Wembley, the, the first ever defeat to, to foreign opposition at Wembley. Um, and the fact it was 6-3 and could have been more than 6-3, the fact that that was a game played on a misty afternoon on Cumberland turf, you know, these are English conditions. This isn't foreigners winning because it's hot or because the pitch is bouncy or because we're abroad and everything's a bit weird and not really, doesn't really count. Hungary came to the Empire Stadium and absolutely destroyed England. So for England then, or an English side then, uh, you know, eighteen months later, mm-hmm. to to beat, yeah, you know, the leading Hungarian club side was hugely significant. And, and a lot, the, a, sorry, and sorry, some, a, some of the cast is the same though. That's what makes yeah. it poignant. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So the yeah. Hungarians have what five, six players, six who, players. Who, uh, yeah, so they'd yeah, Boschik, Levant, Budai, Coxish, Pushkas, and Sibor. Yeah, uh, it would all have played. And uh, yeah, Billy Wright. Billy Wright, obviously the sort of iconic figure for Wolves and England, the captain. The England captain, yeah. The guy who wins 100 caps, the sort of linchpin of Cullis' side and of the Walter Winterbottom's England. Um, the guy who Jeffrey Green had said, you know, fireman going to the wrong fire um, <laughs> of the 6-3 game. Yeah, Pushkas' little drag back to the famous line from Jeffrey Green, yeah. Um, so, so that made it all the more resonant, didn't it? I think it, mm-hmm. that's what... And Wolves aren't just some sort of piddling West Midlands sides. They're the champions and they're also, I think, the league leaders at the point when this... I think Chelsea won the league in the end, but Wolves were a couple of points ahead at the time, I think. So, you know, it's a... It feels like an occasion in the way that maybe going back, maybe I'm... This is a stretch, but in the 1990s when English clubs got back into Europe and, you know, Manchester United are kind of flying the flag... The, the game against Bayern Munich and all that, that people who weren't necessarily very interested in Manchester United would watch it because it's seen as emblematic of English football. I think that's absolutely true of Wolves in the 50s. Yeah, and you see a lot of the reaction in the papers the next day. I mean, there's a piece by, by Charlie Buchan who you know, had been a great inside forward for Sunderland and Arsenal and who had his own football magazine but also was a was a prolific columnist. Uh, and, you know, and he says, this, this shows the English style can still work. 
because English football, those two defeats to, to Hungary, English football have been sent into this uh, this period of great introspection. The, the first ever period of introspection, really. A sense that may, maybe we're not as good as we thought we were. And, and so this is this is evidence that actually everything is okay. Um, you know, the, it's a reactionary reaction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I was going to say it also takes, you know, it's it's about ten years after the war, you know, eight or nine years after the war. Um, it's the sort of last heyday of the mm-hmm. of the model actually that the football, the Victorian model. That, that football was founded on. So empire, industry, it happens in the kind of birthplace of industry in the black country. It, it sort of feels like um, a, a last hurrah, really, for that sort of old British empire, kind of we can conquer the world, we can throw our weight around, the foreigners will come here and we give them a lesson. Um, because, of course, that in that area, you know, there's going to be, in, in, 20, in the next 20 or 30 years, all those people at the game, or a lot of them are going to lose their jobs. And the factories from in which you know they've been that day because it's a Monday that the game happens. So they spend all day working on the Monday in these factories that they regard as world leading, and they go to watch the match. And in twenty or thirty years' time, the factories will be gone. The town will be devastated by unemployment. The team will be in the first to fourth kind of collapse. And and so the the date of the game and the timing and the sort of you know the sort of iconography of it, it all just feels like such a sort of resonant moment you know a scriptwriter couldn't really invent it well it's as if wolverhampton was at the center of the world essentially yeah, yeah, in that, in that yeah. moment you know <laughs> but there is yeah. a fascinating tension there because you have Collis, who is very english and very old-fashioned and his footballing beliefs you know it's wm it's direct football it's it's wingers get the ball in the box it's a it's the old-fashioned form of football which is why charlie buck and, and, and people are, are celebrating it but at the same time this is the, the beginning of a new age. It's you know it's it's on television. They're yeah, experimenting yeah. with new shirts, um, and and this is the beginning of the television age of football. That's uh, I mean way way back in these podcasts when we we did the one on the fifty three FA Cup final mm. with, with Seb Stafford Blower, mm. and we we talked then about how one of the reasons that game resonated. It wasn't just it was a great game. It wasn't just it was Stanley Matthews. It was the fact that a lot of people bought televisions to watch the coronation. And they just got a, a month early to watch the cup final. Yeah, and, and, and there's that famous letter that Neville Cardus writes to the Times. I mean, it's amazing to start with a journalist writing a letter that he's not going to get paid for. <laughs> um, he's really letting the freelance team down. But he wrote that letter to the Times, having he'd been at Lords the day of the cup final in '53, and he'd watched. I think it was the MCC against Yorkshire as the champion county. So the, you know the, the sort of curtain raiser to the season. And there'd been intermittent rain and they'd only played for an hour and everything had been very slow and dull. And Cardus wrote, wrote that letter at the time saying, this is the day that football has supplanted cricket in the popular consciousness. Mm. That yeah, I witnessed a dying sport of cricket and I knew that you know, just down the, I guess the Metropolitan line it would have been in those days at Wembley, you have this cup final for the ages that everybody's talking about and everybody's watched on TV. And so this comes, you know, again, 18 months after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a television event in a, you know in the very first era of television sporting events. Yeah, well, there's the story of George Best who said you know he loved football and he knew his neighbour had a television, so he would go outside his neighbour's house 
you know, maybe 10 minutes before kickoff, start kicking the ball against the wall as if to say, come on, let me in and watch it. You know, and he said, he said his neighbor would always wait till the last moment before kickoff and go, oh, you fancy coming and watching the game? And, uh, and so he did, but he said, you know, he loved Wolverhampton Wanderers because That's right. it was he became the only a Wolves side. fan. Yeah, yeah. He became a, because of this game. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Gordon Banks also mm. said he watched Bert Williams' saves because, um, you know, Wolves were. You know, the Hungarians were all over us in the first half, and um, Banks says, you know, he what he'd seen that he'd seen the saves, and that was the you know he tried to copy them, but he sort of saw that as the as a masterclass in goalkeeping, and I think that you know we forget that before the fifties, football was so localized, you only saw your own team, you know, it's hard to travel, so there wasn't the the, the quite the cult of the away fans that there was in the 60s and 70s when it was easier for people to travel and um you know you didn't you weren't exposed to to all the sort of to the different styles to the different characters that tv then basically creates so tv turns people into sort of recognizable small screen characters in a way that wasn't really the case before then yeah i mean just just on that allure of wolves um you may know John Keith, the, the great Liverpudlian uh, chronicler of Shankly and Paisley, j- journalist and radio broadcaster. He, he was there with them all the way through Liverpool's golden age. And I'd sort of, sort of assumed he was a Liverpool fan because he, you know, he has quite a, a broad Scouse accent, knows everything about the club. No, he was a Wolves fan because he fell in love with Colossus' team in the early 50s yeah. and made a terrible miscalculation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but, but you can't, you can't, you know, sort of, Focus on that the important aspect of television more so much at the time because you know even even fast forward you know I remember the first foreign team that I loved was AC Milan because you'd seen them in the European Cup because it was televised because they probably played it in the final or something like that and again it just seemed so far away and just this other reality this other you know the kits and 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 the players so goodness knows what it was like to watch this on television in the nineteen fifties. Um, But let's go for a break now, and uh, after that we will talk about the match itself. See you in a sec, everybody. Welcome back to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. So then, uh, gentlemen, uh, we come to the match itself, and uh, there was a lot of rain leading up to the match, which will become uh, more important as as the game would sort of wear on. Um, and a little word for, for Honved uh, and their side, uh, Jonathan. You know, they won the championship in 1954, scoring 100 goals in the process. And bear in mind that was in a 20 match, a 26 match season. And that included a 9 7 win against uh, Vurush uh, Lobogo, who finished second, of course. This side under Yenu Kalmar was a very free scoring side, and they were there was goals everywhere on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, the Hungarian League, unfortunately, in the early 50s becomes a bit of a farce. And it's, mm. I think it's one of the reasons. I mean, obviously, there's all the defections in 56, including Kalmar. And I, I think three of this team defect. Uh, Shibor, Coxish, and Pushkas. I don't think anybody else does defect. So, you have a coach and three of this team defect. But all the under 20, national 21 squad defect in 56. But the reason that there's not another generation coming through is you'd had these great Hungarian generations from the end of the First World War is that they've destroyed the league by, by nationalising it in, in 1949. Uh, Honved was a village team from, from Kishpest just outside Budapest. It's now been subsumed into Budapest. Um, and it was made the army team. They already had Pushkas and um, and Boschik. So the, the two best players were already there. 
you know, young talents, which is why Honvid were, were chosen. And Honvid itself, the word is, I think it literally means defender of the motherland, but it's a word for private in the army. So they're, they're, they're the army team. Um, and they, they just conscript all the best players, or, or nearly all the best players. They let some of them go to MTK, which is a team that becomes Vosch Labugu, which means Red Banner was the team of the, the AVH, the Secret Police. Um, and and so yeah, the, the league was really about preparing the players at Honved and Vosch Labugu to play for the national team. And so Kalmar is the coach, but above him you have Gustav Shebesh, the, 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 the um, manager of the national team, who... Yeah, I think we were talking in the when we did the the one the, the podcast on the semi final in the fifty four World Cup against Uruguay, we were talking about he how he wasn't really a coach. He was a great mm-hmm. uh coordinator, a great manager. I mean he played with Kalmar at MTK in the early twenties. So uh, yeah, they, they came from a similar background. MTK at the time had a very distinctive style, which I think is the the foundation of, of the style of Hungary of, of the early fifties. So yeah, I, I the, the goal scoring Achievements of players in that Honda team are incredible, but partly because they're they're literally incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can only beat what's put in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, to the match itself, I mean, much like the nineteen fifty four World Cup final, this match had a not too dissimilar pattern of scoring. Um, and I mean, there's little footage, of course, in British Pathé you know, does its job here with some some wonderful voiceover and, and all that kind of stuff, Dominic. You know, yeah. very, very enjoyable. But you can see uh, that as soon as the game begins, the, the Hungarian side are on top and are playing their fancy football. They are. So, as you said, it's been raining beforehand <laughs> and there's some slight confusion about whether they water the pitch before the match or at half-time. I think probably they did a bit of both. So, Ron Atkinson is the sort of famous... Um, the 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 most famous of the sort of ball boys or whatever who's mm-hmm. isn't it ball boy or an apprentice I'm not uh, saying, he's, yeah, apprentice, he's an apprentice apprentice yeah. who's who's um sent out towards the pitch and doesn't understand why so they're trying to create sort of Agincourt conditions <laughs> where the these sort of fancy foreigners will be bagged will be bogged down and the the mm. the English yeoman can kind of mm. do their stuff so yeah I mean, the hung- they're dragging it down to the trenches <laughs> right exactly yeah. <laughs> They know we, we we've proved we can win trench warfare, so why not have another go? Um, and uh, yeah, so in the first fourteen minutes, um, the Honved score twice, and you can see both those um, goals on YouTube on the British Bathe clip. So one of them, I think, is quite a smart move that cuts through walls, and the other is a header from a Pushkash free kick. I think. Uh, yeah, so the first one is a, you know classic Coxish header from a Pushkash free kick. Yeah. Which Pathé tries to make into controversy as to whether, well, did it hit his hand? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> did it really clearly hit his hand. Yeah. He's really lucky it's not a penalty because if he'd been two feet further back, it's a penalty. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I mean, again, if, if you refer back to the podcast we did on that, that semi final against Uruguay, Coxish in the air from Pushkas free kicks mm. is a very standard way. And I think even at Wembley in in '53, there've been a, a couple of Coxish headers. Um, I mean, he was known as Golden Head, great head of the ball. And then, yeah, four minutes later, the, the, the really slick move, uh, Coxish with a sort of little ball around the corner, and the centre forward, Makos, who's one of those who wasn't a, a national team regular, who runs on a really sort of nice, calm finish. Yeah, so I think at that point, you can see in that second goal the reaction. You can see Billy Wright's reaction in the mm. clip. I mean, he's yeah. gutted. You know, yeah. that he's been humiliated twice by the Hungarians. And this is in front of his home crowd, who, are, as we know, because they're the champions. 
are used to seeing them win again and again, and they're in danger of being humiliated. And at half time, it's still, you know, mm-hmm. still 2 0. And well, but Bert was... Williams makes a brilliant double save. Oh, yes, you, a fantastic save. A you fantastic can't really save. quite work out what's going on in the Pathé clip, but the way he sort of gets up and pushes away the second effort, however yeah. it's quite come about, it's an extraordinary save. Yeah, mm. so you can see the Gordon Banks inspiration right there. It's a d- fantastic mm-hmm. double save. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Ron Atkinson is the author of this. I know he's a, he's a slightly cancelled figure. Um, he's the author of this quote that Wolves could have been 10-0 down at half time, which is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but there's no doubt from those early highlights which team is on top. Yeah, and 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 to go back to those sort of British Pathé clips, you know, the, the two things I found interesting that uh, the, the the sort of the commentary or, or the voiceover rather would say is it talks about this the Honved machine. Yeah, you know, working together. You know how they how they're kind of playing their football, and also refers to the mud pie pitch, and this is in the first half. And and then when you see the clips in the second half, of course it's black and white and it's, it's only certain camera angles, but you see it happening. You see what Cullis is wanting to do is to basically take away the option of playing the ball on the deck, which would very much suit Wolves' style of long and, and direct, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Dominic's right. There is confusion as to when the pitch was watered. Uh mm. I, I spoke to Malakinson about it. This is years ago, and mm. I'm sure he told me it was before the game. But then doing a bit of research for this, I, I found a reference to it happening at half-time. Mm. But it seems to me far more plausible it was before before the game. Because if you're doing it at yeah, half-time... much time at half-time. Because, yeah. I mean, presumably you're not, you know, you're not doing it with incredibly powerful sprinklers and hoses. You're just doing it with a, <laughs> yeah, right. with a you, water you, can. Are you dissing 50s sprinklers? <laughs> <laughs> It was I the mean, fire I, engine that pulled up inside yeah. that kind of gave it away, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I like the idea of Ron Atkinson doing shuttle runs with a watering can, kind of. Um, but I mean, I think it had been raining for for four days anyway, yeah, yeah. and then they had extra water. And you can see, I mean, uh, I think it's the Jeffrey Green match report that refers to Passchendaele, as, right? You know, yeah. Um, but also, Cullis changes the tactics, so it's not just about the water. Hmm. He says, "Get the get the ball to the flanks." He thinks their fullbacks are too square. I've read this in your book, Trough. Uh, he thinks that <laughs> the fullbacks are too square, and you know you can just sling balls in and expose them um, at the back if you get the ball very quickly down the sides. Which, of course, Wolves were very adept at doing. It's their style. They played the WM style, and they they you know long passes, direct passes, and and get the ball in, and 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 you know. Rely on their fitness. It's, I mean, the one thing about Cullis, we're talking about Cullis as this sort of incredibly old-fashioned figure. But what you forget is that Cullis at the time was very modern by British mm-hmm. coaching standards. So, you know, players that individualise fitness regimes. He's quite a progressive coach, mm-hmm. you know, forward-looking. He's young, actually. I know, he, like all people in the 1950s, he looks as though he's about 120. <laughs> but what is he? I mean, he's, he's only retired from playing for about, mm-hmm. what, six or seven years, I think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, Cullis... Yeah, you know, sort of as a, as a player, probably his most famous act is on the last day of forty six seven, when Wolves are playing Liverpool and it's essentially a playoff for the title, and he has a chance to pull down Albert Stubbins. Yeah, and Stubbins goes through, and refuses to do it. He'd rather let Stubbins score and lose the title than cheat because he was a very, very moral man, a very you know, very proud man about yeah. about how he lived his life. The passionate Puritan. The passionate Puritan, yeah. yeah. 
But I think it's important to say these things because we can look back and sort of laugh and sneer about, oh, well, they just wanted to long ball it and so on. Oh, no, no, I, th- I think Cullis actually in many ways is a very admirable figure. Mm. And, and, and the flooding of the pitch, of course, it makes complete sense. If you flood the middle of the pitch, mm-hmm. what's Wolves' the strength? It's it's the wingers, so Hancocks and Smith in, in, in this instance. Although Smith, uh, I, th- I think, didn't normally play, did he? Um, so, you, you, you know, you leave, the, you leave the flanks firm and you, you know, Hanvard's Hungarians play through the middle. You, you make that muddy. I mean, it's exactly the same as Brian Clough did before Derby played Benfica in seventy-one-two. Uh, it's exactly the same thing. Just mm-hmm. make the middle of the pitch boggy and play to your wingers. Well, it's if, interesting. If, sorry, I was about to say if if an international team, if a European or South American team did it, you'd say yeah. crafty. Typically crafty. Mm. Why are we so naive? <laughs> When we do it, it's sort of, oh, yeah. that's, that's undermined the, the basis of the entire sport. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, I think they must have done it again because if you, if you watch uh, some of the clips when, uh, you know, a few years later when um, Wolves play Barcelona and they're beaten 5-2, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Cochise himself who you see in a clip, he kind of has the ball surrounded by mud and he flicks it up and starts, you know like they do when they play beach football, <laughs> yeah. where you have no choice but to kind of flick it up. It's essentially it's a beautiful clip where he does that and it kind of just shows you what he was kind of dealing with. But anyway, back to this game. Uh, four minutes after the break, Dominic, Wolves find themselves with a penalty. Would you, would you call it a soft penalty? I would call it a soft penalty. When I first saw it, I, I, I couldn't actually see what the foul was. <laughs> and this was um, the 1950s. Yeah, I think, some, I think um, somebody just falls over, don't they, on the yeah. sort of edge of the area. Yeah, uh, it's Kovash sort of blocks um, Hancock's. Yeah, and but Hancock scores the penalty, doesn't he? 49 yeah. minutes. But it is a very, very, I mean, it's a soft penalty. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, mm. Reg Lee for referee from Nottingham, which is yeah. that far from Wolverhampton. Yeah, but there's a lot of bad blood there, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, okay, probably what could have gone against them. But 2-1, and, uh, and, and and as you said in, in the first half, uh, Dominic, you know you, you could see the crowd, the joy, the excitement, because you know 2-0 down early on in the game, you're thinking, oh my goodness, we're in for a pasting here. This could be very, very embarrassing. Get in at 2-0. And uh, and it's two one. I mean, something that perhaps we missed in, in when talking about the first half of this match was um, uh, what, 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 I'm trying to remember the name of the goalkeeper um, for for uh, Honved. Um, he Farago. Was, Farago. Thank he, you. Yeah. He he pulls off some great saves actually. And Farago. and in that first half as well, to the point of the crowd gave him a bit of a cheer when he came out because they were kind of so impressed with him so yes Wolves were, were, were down but they certainly weren't out and at 2-1 Jonathan the game's back on and uh, in, in Mud Pie Molyneux uh, anything's possible I suppose and it proved to be yeah and, and you get that sense that and I, I don't know why it happens but I think it, if something does happen in floodlit games and maybe it's because European games tend to be two-legged and, and so two-legged football lends itself to this kind of thing but you do get a sense even in that two and a half minute clip of of sort of this rising tide of expectation of, of a siege beginning, and then seventy six minutes, uh, Willshaw down, down the wing, and across to Swinburne, a header to make it two two, and, and you know again you, you although it's through microphones from the nineteen fifties, mm-hmm. the, the the noise is is incredible. You see the celebrations, Swinburne himself, the the way he celebrates. Yeah, I mean that you 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 can tell. That the friendly thing actually completely mm. misses the excitement of it, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. as you said at the beginning, you think of a friendly and you just think of some god-awful, desultory kind of, <laughs> you know, it's played out in front of 20, 
you know, 200,000 people in Chicago and none yeah. of them care. You know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of, you know, preseason sort of jamboree. But this wasn't that at all. I mean, the, the players are beside themselves. The crowd are going mad. You know, it does. I mean, all the, we laugh now about the kind of champions of the world rhetoric afterwards. But you can tell that it actually genuinely, you know, it's about more than it's not just pride. I mean, pride's a big part of it. But clearly the players think it's meaningful and that makes it meaningful. I mean, that's how sport works, right? If you think it matters, it matters. Yeah, completely. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the fundamental of it. It's, it's the modern era money has, has slightly distorted that. But fundamentally, it's a bit like, I mean, it's, it's obviously a lower scale, but um, that friend England played against Argentina in Geneva in 2005, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. which suddenly midway through the second half, went from being completely pointless to being absolutely hell for leather brilliant. Yeah. And totally inexplicable what, what suddenly happened. But it became a brilliant game of football. Yeah. That yeah, you know, I remember leaving that stadium, yeah, you know, having had to do you know, frenzied rewrites at the end as England scored twice like on, feeling sort of elevated. But we've and, all been to games like that. A yeah. game that's a a random league game. I mean I went about two seasons ago when, I mean, I've lost track of time because of the bloody lockdown. But um, when we were in our first season back in the Premier League and we played Leicester and we played them at Molyneux and we won 4-3. And um, it's, the, it's the game for Wolves fans who are listening will know it's when Nuno ran out to the South Bank to celebrate with the players our winning goal. Um, what's just called the winning goal? Jota, I think. Jota got the winner. And... You know, it's just a it's a nothing game in many ways. You know, it's a league game between what we were we were seventh and they were twelfth, but it had that electricity that you sometimes get in games where suddenly you're like, wow, everyone's really up for this. This this just matters in its own terms as a game, as a contest. The fans, the players, and that's absolutely true of this Wolves Hornbeck game. It it really it clearly there was obviously a point at which it just really really mattered. Yeah, I th- I th- and this is teams. Not so much with England because they thought they they were the the footballing map, but it's a bit you know, putting your putting your team on the map, putting your showing the world what you could do, uh, and especially for those uh, the, the, this particular game being televised and so on. It was giving the the spotlight and the platform in a way that that we hadn't really seen or they hadn't really seen because obviously we weren't there. <laughs> um, and and for Wolves then to go on and win the game, you know. Was 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 absolutely huge, and again, Dominic, you see when that second Swinburne goal goes in, the reaction of the crowd or anything—it was absolutely glorious. Yeah, so it's just a couple of minutes after the his first yeah. goal, isn't it? So you obviously get this sense of the sort of irresistible tide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a kind of unbelievable, you know, it's a great finish, mm-hmm. confident finish, kind of blasts it in, kind of Roy of the Rovers style, and and yeah, this sort of it's the culmination of all this pressure. Um, it's a great goal, actually. Don't you think it's a good goal, Trough? It's a yeah, really good goal. Yeah, and it, it and but you're right. It's the fact it's two minutes after it, that that there's that great sense of momentum that the whole the whole thing is just a uh, yeah, as you say, it's just a tide that can't be stopped. And and even the you know the flow of the move, your Smith down the left in, into Swinburne, and and then yeah, absolutely drills it bottom corner. Um, and it yeah, it's it's the kind of goal you get when you're on top and you've come back to two two and, and you're looking for a winner. But it's also yeah. the kind of goal you get. I think the flood, the floodlights, the fact that it's a night game, it, it does remind me of those. I mean, I was a student, used to go and watch those Manchester United Champions League games when there was only mm. one 
English team in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. And you know there'd be this sort of some quarterfinal at Old Trafford and the sense of irresistible momentum yeah. as yeah. Ferguson's team kind of cranked itself up. You know, Beckham raining in from the right or something. And there is that that sort of magic that you get, I think, with these evening games, often mm. against European opposition. Um, the, well, the, the I, I, think, I think there's something even in the style of play that's not dissimilar. I mean, obviously, Manchester United in, in the late 90s were uh, a, a more sophisticated side than this Wolves. But in terms of get the ball... <laughs> oh, yeah, what? I, I, think you, I think you misspoke there. <laughs> in terms of getting the ball wide, reining in crosses... Yeah, the the way they win, it's it's not sort of to to dance around you and then suddenly apply the stiletto. It's to bludgeon you repeatedly until you succumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's actually exactly. Ferguson's a great admirer of Wolves, by the way. So Ferguson is of that generation who grew up watching them on TV, and of course, it's easy now that we think of them as du- because they're direct. We think long ball, therefore primitive. Yep. Kind of Stone Age football. Well, and, and Herrera destroys them in that interview after Barcelona yeah. beat them. I mean, but Herrera's the t- disdain is magnificent. But at the time, it's perceived as attacking, exciting football. It's kind of blood and thunder, which is what obviously English crowds have been kind of raised to expect. Mm. Um, which, which is which is why there was a headline after the game: the genuine, original, unbeaten article, still the best of its kind in the world. <laughs> You're damn right, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> that's the stuff. Well, there you go. That's the appeal of that. That's the the resonance, isn't it? That yeah. at a time when you know Britain had come out of the war, it's crippled with debt, the mm. empire is breaking up. There is a sort of self doubt. Mm-hmm. Time and again in the fifties, to sort of put on my historian's sort of mortarboard. Time and again in the 50s, you see this sort of slightly sort of fevered straining for import, for self-importance. You know, but, I mean, we still that, that, matter, we're still... Go on. But that, that reflects absolutely uh, what Hungary had felt when they, they won at Wembley in 53. That, mm. And, and Shebesh, I, I, I've never quite been able to pin down what Shebesh believed and what he just said because it was useful for him to say it. But he he spouted all this stuff about, you know, we are modern, we are socialist. And here we are in the Empire Stadium, beating the Imperial Power with our modern football against their moribund, moribund football. And this is the Empire striking back, if you like. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It absolutely is. I think it's that's, just, how people, that's, how the, that's what you see in the press commentary. We can still do it. We are still number one. And then, of course, what we know is in the third part of the trilogy, the Empire gets defeated once more. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, um, and this game, as, as you mentioned before, you know, had such a, a, a huge effect on football in general. You know, a couple of French journalists had been to South America and saw the Campeonato Sudamericano de Campeones, precursor to the Copa Libertadores, of course, and had been suggesting something similar in Europe. And then a UEFA Congress in March 1955 proposes such a competition, and the following season, Jonathan, the European Cup's born. Yeah, uh, which. Bureaucracy moving with incredible speed. I mean, it's, it's, it's something I've never quite worked out is why the French are so good at the bureaucracy of football. I mean, they found FIFA and UEFA. They create mm-hmm. the World Cup. They create the European mm-hmm. Championship. They create the European Cup. And really, they're not very good. I know they're reigning world champions. But apart from that... But isn't that the answer? Isn't it because they're not very good? Because they're not hidebound by... They don't have any other interests. So they, yeah, I mean, and, and there's probably there's no sort of self-interest. Yeah. The, the clubs, the self-interest of the clubs is less powerful there. Yeah, maybe that is it. Because we couldn't set it up. Uh, we, I mean, 
England couldn't set it up because there's so many competing interests. There's the FA and the league. There's the clubs. There would just be endless argument. I mean, in France, well, and of course, the league wouldn't wouldn't allow English clubs to wouldn't allow exactly. Chelsea to compete in the first exactly. season. But in France, I mean, basically nobody cares about football. So those people who do, the sort of hobbyists, can get together and set up their their club, their competition involving basically teams from other countries, and nobody cares. I mean, yeah. I'm being very harsh on the French here, but. Yeah. <laughs> So in terms of France not being a football country, clearly they have had three really great generations. The the generation won the European Championship in eighty four, the World Cup and European Championship ninety eight two thousand, and then the, the current generation. But really, before nineteen eighty, there wasn't much. Eighty four was a just know, the field. Yeah, Fontaine and and and, and fifty eight. I, I guess, um, but it's really it's Claire Fontaine that's taken them to a new level. It's, yeah. it's their ability to almost industrially produce footballers. But you know, here's the, here's what I always thought was the difference. So in the 1990s, I lived for a time in France when you when when we initially overlapped at university. Um, yeah. And uh, what really struck me there was that interest in football was completely different from how it was in England. So in England, even people who aren't interested in football are kind of interested in football. They know that it's happening. They might support a team. In France, the people that I knew, they were either interested in football which meant it was their main hobby and they went to games or they had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever and the very thought of having a team was anathema to them you know much as i'm not interested in basketball i don't have a team i mean it wouldn't wouldn't enter my head to even think about basketball that was how the french people i knew thought about football it was one sport among many and you know it's not cycling or 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 draping yourself in onions (laughs) <laughs> or losing wars to Germany. It wasn't one of the main, you know, the main activities that that all Frenchmen are raised to do from birth. Uh, well, I, I I suppose we should go back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, but with with Wolves at Honford. Um, well, I mean, course... Willie Meisel, the he's a um, uh, Austrian. I mean, he, he's the. He's the brother, isn't he? I was going to say the cousin. I think he's the brother of, of Ugo Meisel, the great mm-hmm. manager of, of Austria in the in the twenties and thirties. See the whirl, man. The whirl. Uh, yes, the, the Danubian whirl. Yeah, yeah. And Willie Meisel, you know, uh, he he flees. He's Jewish. He flees to Britain before the Second World War. Um, is a very um, is very much Anglophile, but is also very scathing of British conservatism when it comes to football. And he you know, he writes Soccer Revolution in I think fifty four it comes out, which is this devastating sort of expose of everything that's wrong with English football and why England's fallen behind. And he writes this magnificent piece, um, in the midst of all this hysteria about how Wolves are the champions of the world, pointing out that the previous week Honvard had lost to Venezuela Red Star in Belgrade, who at the time was seventh in the Yugoslav League, and nobody suggested they were the champions of the world. And then he goes on. Dare I also remark in passing that quagmires are not usually considered the best pitches on which world championships ought to be decided. Not even neutral quagmires. See, there's a great yeah. Daily Mail op-ed to be written on this. About <laughs> sneering Eurocrats, <laughs> mocking our brave, you know, <laughs> sons of the Midlands. Um, they sneered at us after Agincourt, mm-hmm. after Passchendaele. They sneer at us now after the Battle of Molyneux. I mean, I can, it writes itself. It does, yeah. I think we should probably end there. Don't you? Yeah, I'll go and write it. <laughs> um, I should point out, ladies and gentlemen, that your ears haven't deceived you. Uh, Dominic has been referring to Jonathan as trough throughout this podcast. I don't know why either. 
it's, a, it's, a, it's an old nickname. We knew uh, each other. We met at university in 1990. He was never. Five. He was never. I mean, you were never Jonathan. Well, there'd been a lot of Jonathans at my school, and there were mm. a lot of Jonathans at university. And the way it came, because my first year, you'd gone to France. So I only met you in my second year, which is your yeah. third year. Um, although people had, had, had established early that we would get on. Um, <laughs> yeah, there'd been rumours of you had reached France. Yes. I've been told by people. <laughs> There's this fellow who knows more than you. <laughs> uh, and it came about because I was, I was playing football in the first week and instinctively went up for a header shouting, crossbow! Yeah. And it, it, it led from there. And because there's so many other Jonathans, it, it's the nickname I had school stuck. There you are. It, it, but it, I don't know anyone who lived under their nickname as much as you did. I mean, no. did anybody call you Jonathan in the three years? Oh, my mum did sometimes. Yeah. And now I see you trading under Jonathan Wilson. I just think it's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, if you saw Pele's real name, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't think two things about that, would you? It's Pele and Trough. That they're the two kind of uh, yeah, meaningless, meaningless yeah. but iconic names. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Whatever well, we are, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for listening to uh, the greatest games on the Blizzard. For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Dominic, thank you very much for coming. Thank you on for the having board. me. It's been an absolute pleasure. We'll see you next week, everybody. 